and turn in it to the book of Exodus. If you are visiting us this morning, another warm welcome to you. We are glad that you are with us this morning. And we invite you, you will see a Bible in the rack in front of you. If you don't have one, please take one of those, follow along. It's the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, Genesis, Exodus, and the 24th chapter, 24th chapter, Exodus 24, that's our residence this morning. As we pick up Westmount, our study this morning, we have arrived, as you will see, at a climax. The Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, if you will, have been presented to Israel. The subsequent, remember, flowing out of those, the subsequent case laws out of those Ten Words have been given. And God's standard of living for this newly delivered people is before them. In light of that, we must not lose sight of the greater context. We don't want to lose sight of the greater context. We've been drilling down a lot over the past few weeks. But we need to pull the the lens back a little bit here this morning, which is this. God's chosen people, God's delivered people, his plan, his power, his work. That's the context, right, for all that we've been studying these past few weeks and really in this book. Within that reality, so that overall of God's initiation, his plan, deliverance, power, work, and so on, within that reality is the subsequent implication that a people redeemed, and this makes sense, a people redeemed by the one redeeming them would live according to that redeemer. Is that not true? The one purchasing, the one redeeming, that they would then live in accordance with the one with power to redeem. Now listen, that's the logical reality, but there's something greater than that here. God's chosen people, Israel, are called to live according to this law, not just because the law was given by their deliverer. That's not all here. Look close. No, long before deliverance, long before that escape from Egypt, there was a promise made to God's people. We've covered this before. We've referenced it numerous times, in fact, because you must in a study of Exodus in the context of covenant. Genesis 12, and we read that last week, remember calling Abraham out of that pagan nation and telling him not only where he must go, but who he now serves and the promise of blessing to Abraham. We looked at that last week. Hundreds of years before deliverance, before redemption, there was covenant with Abraham. A covenant presented to Abraham. And again, last week, we read its initial giving in Genesis 12, those opening verses, so simple, yet so clear. This week, I'm going to read from you to open with our time, Genesis 15. Genesis 15, just listen to this, so covenant unfolds here, and you can follow along if you want. Genesis 15, 7 to 20, he's already, Yahweh, made covenant in Genesis 12, and now we look at covenant ceremony and ratification Verse 7, Genesis 15, And he said to him, this is Yahweh to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. See that? Yahweh reminding him, I am the Lord who called you out. I initiated my work. 
But he said, O Lord, this is Abram, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. We've looked at that before. That's fulfilled, right, as they come back. Exodus 6. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. Note that. The elements here passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring... I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Canaanites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. That is following the initial covenant announcement initiated by God. We have ceremony. We have ceremony. In fact, more, we would say we have covenant confirmation. Do you see that? God has said covenant and now he confirms it, initiated, outlined, and confirmed by Yahweh. Now, we've already commented on the ceremony details that we just read in Exodus. We've commented on those already, so no need to go there again. Today, we will return to just this aspect of covenant ceremony. Fully, in fact, in chapter 24, you're going to see that. As we move from inauguration ceremony, right, and you see that in in Genesis 15, to ratification ceremony, Exodus 24, what we note again, and as we have repeatedly in Exodus, is simply this. The events of the Exodus, the miraculous deliverance, the law presented, all of it, and we can't say this enough, lay squarely within the context of covenant, All these events are happening within God's promise. So important. The the context is covenant. Exodus has been a key act in the unfolding progression of God's covenant with his people. And we note that to begin. A covenant that we'll see affirmed today by way of another ceremony. Again, we'll see that. A covenant with a key forerunner. In the covenant to Noah, remember, this was one of the precursors to this covenant. For God to bless a people, to multiply people, he needs to never again wipe out the earth. So that's an important aspect of the covenant with God's people, with Noah. A covenant will be elaborated on later with the covenant toward David. Such people need a ruler, a perfect ruler, as promised an earthly ruler, to sit on the throne, to govern his people. That's God's covenant with David. And a covenant here under Moses that outlines, and this has been the key that we've studied, what it means truly to be a covenant people. And we've said this at length, and I hardly need to repeat it. 
To be identified, you think about Tyler this morning, one of the things we love about Tyler and we appreciate. It's not a label, right? I'm not just a covenant person and you do everything else the same. It's radical life change to be a covenant person, to be one of God's people. It means covenant lordship all of your life to him. This is what it means to be God's covenant people. There's a way that we live under the one that delivered us. And it brings us to one final introductory matter, and maybe you've heard the word, think to yourself, covenant, the notion of covenant itself. We need to deal with that. What does covenant mean? What is meant by the term covenant? Maybe, and I would submit to you in our day today, you realize, well, covenant feels like it means something more. I don't know what that is in this day, but it just feels more special. Maybe that's what you're thinking. What is covenant, biblically? Daniel C. Lane says, and I quote, A covenant is an enduring agreement which defines a relationship between two parties involving a solemn, binding obligation or obligations specified on the part of at least one of the parties toward the other. He concludes saying, made by oath under threat of divine curse and ratified by visual ritual. I mean, that's a very good definition. It's robust. It's big though, right? It hits some important points. Covenant, and this is so crucial, Covenant is relationship defined. You see that? This is the beauty of covenant with God. It gives definition to the relationship. We all know how relationships end that have no definition. See marriage today, right? With no definition, no parameters, we know how that goes. Covenant, he says, is obligation, I like this, under oath with threats of divine curse. We don't like that, right? We don't like that, but it's true. The Bible says the way of the transgressor is hard. In other words, live your way and you will have a hard life. He also says, when you think about this definition, Lane says is ratified. That word just simply means endorsed or affirmed. When something's ratified, it's affirmed by a visual ritual. That's good. We're going to see that today. The definition, again, as mentioned, is good, but we could distill it further. You know me, I love things simple. All right, it has to be simple. Gordon Huggenberger suggests a more trim definition. He says, quote, a covenant in its normal sense is an elected, as opposed to natural, relationship of obligation under oath. That's compact and yet still comprehensive, and it grabs one other aspect that needs to be there, the idea of volition or election. This is an act of the will. You need to get that in covenant. Will. Those are good, but we could go further if we really wanted to simplify this with a clear, well-rounded, pithy definition. I like Peter Gentry and Stephen Wellam's definition best. It's this, a berit, that's the Hebrew word for covenant, a berit, a covenant is a relationship involving an oath-bound commitment. There it is. An oath, if oath sounds big, that's because we've lost that too. We've lost promise, we've lost covenant, we've lost oath. But it's an oath-bound commitment that defines that relationship. That's very good. And that's what we see in Genesis 15, and it's what we're going to see again in Exodus 24. Now this week, this morning, we're considering the whole chapter. So we're not going to read it all first. We're going to work our way through it, dig in, study it. We'll read it section by section. And it divides very simply into two parts. 
The first half of this chapter, we're going to spend the most time on, so I'll warn you ahead of time, very much front-loaded because there's so much there. And it deals with this. This is our first point, covenant pledge. Covenant pledge. Let's look at that. Look at verse 1 of chapter 24. Then he, this is Yahweh, said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. With the law presented, Yahweh now calls a specific group. Do you see them? There's a very specific called out group to come up the mountain. He calls Moses. Now, we might need a bit of a refresher on Moses because it's been a while, right? We've studied so much, we can't forget about Moses. Remember, Moses was the Hebrew left in a basket. Do you remember that? Under the edict by Pharaoh, the young Hebrew males be slaughtered. He was left in a basket on the river, found by Pharaoh's daughter, and then he was raised in Egypt for 40 years. Then he fled to Midian. You remember that flight where he became a shepherd in that wilderness? And then in the middle of his tending, right, he was called by God. Now you remember, one thing you remember from that call, as you think of our Exodus study, he was a very reluctant one called. Do you remember that? Oh, what will they say? What will I do? I don't have the words. I'm not eloquent. God said, I'm the one that made you, and you will be used by me. Recall, as God said, in fact, more than your misgivings, Moses, you will be, remember the text in Exodus before Pharaoh, you will be like God to Pharaoh. Incredible. You will be like, you, you are the human instrument that I will use to deliver my people. That's Moses. God's work to deliver alone, but Moses led them as God led him through the Red Sea, in the wilderness, and then to Mount Sinai, chapter 19, here. Moses went up the mountain in chapter 19 and received the ten words, the law. Moses now called up again. We've looked at law, right? We have the case laws. Now, with that all done, Moses called up again for the confirmation ceremony of God's word. Moses called, and also note who else? Aaron. Do you see that? Aaron, the eloquent-speaking brother of Moses, right? From chapter 4, we were introduced to him. We haven't seen much of Aaron thus far. We just know he accompanied Moses before Pharaoh in Egypt. And other than really one brief cameo, do you remember, where he held up Moses' hands in chapter 17? Other than that, Aaron's not been mentioned. And after Aaron, look, we have Nadab and Abihu. They show up for the first time here in verse 1. We learn later, or we will learn later in chapter 28, that they're Aaron's sons. Aaron's sons. The first priest. They will make up the first priest. They have two other brothers. We're going to look at them later. The first priest with him, with Aaron. And we'll reserve comment on Nadab and Abihu. Of course, they have a very spectacular end in Leviticus 10. And we'll reference all of that when we get there. And finally, the ascending group includes 70 of the elders of Israel. Do you see that? Quite possibly, these are the able men. Do you remember the able men that Jethro suggested in chapter 18? We don't know for sure, but very likely these are the able men, the 70 placed over the hundreds and hundreds in that chapter. These 74 individuals are called by God, and look at it, to come up and to worship from afar. Now, that is true for almost all of them. In verse 2, look at verse 2. We learn of one of them that will go very far, 
Verse 2 says this, Moses alone, this is Yahweh continuing to talk, shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses, as he did in chapter 3, will come near to the Lord. Now we need to see that. Moses, assuming this role, look at it, look at his placement between God and his people. Do you see that role that Moses has? He is the in-between, the intermediary between God and his people. Crucial. One who is granted unique access in the presence of Yahweh. He alone, Yahweh says, he, that intermediary, that mediator is the one and the only one that can come to represent you before me. He also, one who does that, draws near to stand on behalf of God's people, as we said. He represents the people. So Moses, a mediator, an intercessor, one necessary in between God and his people. And as mediator here, what does he do? Look at verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. That's what he does. That is all the words, the Ten Commandments, and all the rules, the case laws. As mediator, Moses receives those words from God. Note this. He receives the inspired words from God, and he relays them to the people. Now, you might say that sounds an awful lot like the role of a prophet, as we have learned, and you would be right. You would be right. That is what a prophet did. A prophet relayed God's revealed word. Moses was very much that here in Exodus. In fact, Deuteronomy 18, you can just note that, makes that very clear that Moses was a prophet. But what Deuteronomy 18 does, and as scripture unfolds, you see, points to the new Moses, the one that would come to lead God's people truly out of bondage, the ultimate bondage that they were in. One that will speak words from God, the new Moses, this new prophet was coming. And one that I think you realize we celebrate during this season, his arrival and his coming, Jesus Christ. The only one that truly can deliver people from bondage. It's the new Moses, Jesus. More to say on that later and in the new year. We continue in the text, though, and note the response of God's people. Consider they are now receiving these words and these laws from God. And, beloved, we need to do this. We just need to take a moment, and not only by way of review, but we need to consider the words that Moses would have received and relayed. These are not ordinary words. I just want you to consider with me, review, if you will, to have no other gods before Yahweh exclusivity. He says, only me. To bow down to Yahweh alone. To use proper words, not to blaspheme your God. To use proper words that build up. To keep the Sabbath holy. And your father and your mother, by the way, as covenant people, you honor them. You honor them. You don't murder, commit adultery, you don't steal, lie, or covet. That's not covenant behavior. And if that wasn't clear, Israel, God got specific for them in that time period. Remember the time stamp. This, Israel, is how you treat slaves as human beings, not as property. This is what you do when you harm another's ox, field, or property. You make it right. There's restitution, not rationalization. As it should be, restitution is fitting. An eye for an eye, remember? It's a just recompense for what you've done. 
God's law, remember, even more defines social justice. We don't need ivory towers to do that. God's law does it to the virgin, to the sojourner, the widow, the orphan, the poor, those truly oppressed. And yes, even, this is Yahweh, this is your God, even to your enemy, justice. You treat them all fair and justly. And by the way, remember, you don't add wrongs to it. You don't right a wrong with a wrong, which we see today. Even more in God's words given to Moses to the people Israel, you rest rightly, refreshing in Yahweh. You give first fruits to Yahweh. And Israel, you feast before the Lord God, not any other idol or ritual. Israel, you do not live according to Egypt or Canaan, where you've been or where you're going, which means you do not choose your favorite God. You do not give partial offerings, and you definitely do not boil young goats, as the pagans do. No, these words, this law, my covenant with you, is life lived God's way alone. That's what covenant means. Living life according to the terms of the master. One looks again here, now after the words and law given, and they should say, now this should be the response, and I hope maybe some of you feel this. Israel, Israel, don't you need a moment to think about that? I mean, don't you need a moment? Israel, are you going to count the cost of that covenant? Because from what I'm hearing, says objective observer, that's everything. You're giving everything to Yahweh. Like, don't you need a minute to think about that? This is a high and holy standard to live like that and, and in everything. Back in chapter 19, when they hastily responded. You remember the hasty response? Oh, we're creatures of the hasty response. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. One could say, well, they were eager. One could say, but they hadn't heard all the words yet, right? You'd say, okay, grant that. Well, it's not true here, is it? Right? They've heard all the words. It's not true here. Now they have the words in the law. God in, in principle, in God's law, and, and, and very specific in case law. And before the verse, look at verse 3. Before the verse is even complete, we hear their answer. You talk about not coming up for a breath. Back to verse 3. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now, listen, more than chapter 19. Now, they're in unison with one voice. Do you see that? All of them. Every man and woman in Israel, very certain that they will keep covenant command. We won't even get out of this book in Exodus, let alone the Old Testament, to see how that goes. Now, that's the covenant pledge, listen, from the people. Do you see that? That's how people work, isn't it? The hasty response, the self-overconfidence, we got this one. Yahweh, we will do. That's the covenant pledge from people, from man. And that really, beloved, that's the best man can offer, right? Overpromise, underdeliver. That's the currency of man, is it not? Every time. Promise to fulfill, and of course, rank inability to fulfill. It's the nature of man with their covenant pledge. Well, this covenant pledge, this we will do, receives some visual support. However, before we look at those visuals, I want you to know at the beginning of verse 4. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. 
That divine sentence, just look at it. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Is so important. We just need to pause for a moment. It demands our attention. It confirms three things. One, how these words were preserved. Do you see that? How? Moses wrote them down. That's how these words were preserved. That's one. Two, it confirms whose words they are and whose words are they. Moses? Joshua's? Aaron? Remember, he was the good speaker. No, whose words are they? The Lord's. He wrote the words of the Lord down. It confirms, thirdly, that every word is inspired. Moses wrote, I love this, all the words of God. Every word is inspired. We learned that earlier this year, did we not, in Sunday school? It's the inspired words. God using men to give us his inspired words. And who did God use to give the Old Testament words here in law? Simply, verse 4, Moses. Now Moses does not communicate, sorry, does not just communicate God's words. I want you to see what else. We continue in verse 4. It's not just the words, look at verse 4. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. As you consider that, I want you to look at this scene. The very next day, Moses rises early. Do you see that? Verse 4, he immediately, his response is to rise early the next day, and he gets right at ceremony, at covenant ceremony. That's Moses. And we see five elements in those verses we just read, five elements of this covenant ratification affirmation ceremony here. Number one, Moses builds an altar At the foot of the mountain. You see that. This altar would have been built according to the instructions. Do you remember them flowing out of the ten words at the end of chapter 20? There were altar instructions there. So presumably the altar would have been built that way. Exodus 20, 22 to 26. And remember, altar construction was for the Lord. Remember to point up to him. Here, as the covenant is confirmed, altar construction is first and foremost. And that makes sense. Right out of the ten words, yet altar construction, same thing here. Secondly, Moses erects twelve pillars according to what and who? The twelve tribes of Israel. These pillars, of course, represent the people in this covenant. This is the people represented. This is Israel represented. Between the altar and the pillars, the covenant parties are represented. Do you see that? Thirdly, we have sacrifices made here, verse 5. Young men, and by the way, young men, we don't have the priests yet. We're getting to them soon in Exodus. So young men carrying out burnt and peace offerings. These are two types of offerings, right, that receive fuller expression. When you turn to the book of Leviticus, you know those opening chapters in Leviticus that detail all the offerings. Well, these are two of them that are detailed there in Leviticus. But just to simplify, burnt offerings marked atonement. Atonement, recognizing Sin. So every piece of it, and that makes sense, 
of the burnt offering, every piece of it would be turned to ash. Nothing left. Very important. Prefiguring. Peace offerings marked fellowship. And what's interesting as you read about peace offerings in Leviticus is that there were select pieces of the animal preserved. This is like a, a fellowship, a more horizontal understanding of the offering. And again, Leviticus has much more to say about those, and that's not the point here. But these were offered, burnt and peace offerings. Fourthly, the sprinkling of blood. This was the heart of covenant confirmation, the sprinkling of blood. Covenants were sealed with blood. They all were. They all were. Even into modern times, people would do this. Pricking their fingers, writing a name, even putting them together. There's this understanding of how serious covenant and pact and agreement was. Here, Hebrews 9, verse 22. Just listen to this. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Almost everything in covenant, biblical covenant, is purified by blood. The question would be, well, that was blood back then, and what about blood now? Those are great questions that we'll come back to. How is purified with blood today? Fifthly, recitation of covenant terms. You see that like a legal act, the law was recited. Those laws, those words now officially, look at verse 7. They have a name, the book of the covenant. The book of the covenant. Moses wrote them down, verse 4, and here they are recited, and again they agree. And look at verse 7. Again, upon hearing the words, they declare, we will be obedient. This time the words are sealed now, though, as opposed to chapter 19. The words now given are sealed with blood. As if it wasn't severe enough, Israel... In verse 8, Moses takes the blood, and what does he do? What a visual here. They're in the bowls, and he throws it on the people. This would have been a very familiar rite of the people to say, this is beyond serious, for lack of a better word. This is oath and covenant. Again, we have no shelf space for this today. We have none. We, we are beyond commitment phobic. Knowing, when you think about throwing the blood on the people, Think about this, the severity, knowing their ability to obey God's words, you'd say, this is a terrifying scene. You just sealed that pact in blood and you can't do it. Serious. And really, the notion of covenant would always be terrifying when we are involved as one of the parties. If we looked at the blood and truly understood our inability to fulfill, is that not true? I often wonder how many of us have moments of pause and reflection before we make any agreement, before we give our yes and give our no. Does anyone do a quick little anthropology and say, I'm human and I'm man. And as confident as I feel in this moment, it could be very likely I will not fulfill that. And I need someone bigger than myself. I need someone outside of myself to help me with my covenant relationships. I wonder. And that is why you take heart and hope in key details like this that can be missed when we're just reading our Bible. Look at verse 8. Don't miss this glorious detail. Moses says, Behold the blood of the covenant that you will uphold. Is that what it says? No. He says, Beloved, the, the blood of the covenant struck by you and God. Is that what it says? No. Look what it says. Moses says, Look close now. 
Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Do you see that? Who initiates? Who gives? Who is over and through and to completion? Israel, this is Yahweh's covenant. His And he, out of his divine eternal initiation, out of his sovereign will and prerogative, he has chosen to make it with you. But this is, make no mistake about it, Yahweh's covenant. Here, by the way, a pointer, even in the Mosaic covenant, as many would say it's a conditional covenant, here a pointer, yes, even in the Mosaic covenant, that God is the covenant engine. And you know, that's the point. In some senses, and we learn this later in Galatians and Romans, this is the point to point us to our inability We, so quick with our covenant pledge, and here God in verse 8 says, this is the covenant pledge, it's me. Can't imagine the hope derived from knowing you've entered a covenant with God Almighty, who is faithful. God initiated, God struck Genesis 15, God gives here. So pledge and fulfillment is also from him. By the way, one day, one day, we will have this fulfillment with Right? Fulfilled, or they will, God's people, prophecies of a new heart. True ability given, not from their own strength. They pulled up their bootstraps enough. Fulfillment given by Yahweh, given by Yahweh, consummated by Yahweh, Him alone. Pledge and fulfillment also from now in part, that climbing team, remember the 74, will receive this pledge in 3D. They're going to get a glimpse caught of this covenant pledge when we think about Yahweh. Look at verse 9. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Wow. That same 74 from verse 1 are identified here again. And here... For what they will see. Do you see that? It's so understated. Look at the beginning of verse 10. Just so understated. And they saw the God of Israel. They saw the ultimate pledge. The ultimate identification of fulfillment. They saw Yahweh. Now if you know the rest of Exodus. You would say well wait a minute. Wait a minute. You should. In Exodus 33.20. Yahweh will say to Moses. Man shall not see me and live. What's going on here? Is this one of those, well, there it is, the Bible and its contradictions, there it is. Well, we respond simply with a few realities. Number one, if you were to read Exodus 33, as we should, Moses is asking to see God's glory. And God equates and God allows him to see what? His back. He equates his glory to his face. And that brings me to the second one, too. Moses actually sees God in part in that passage. In part. His back, not his face, as Yahweh says in verse 23. And thirdly, the Bible actually does record other God sightings. God revealed, and note this, in part, but not fully. Interestingly, in each of these... God being seen, and I want us to grab this, every time you have that God sighting, God being seen in the nature of God is not the emphasis of that text. And let me show you this. It's not that they saw God and hear all the things fully about God. No, there's always an emphasis. Like Isaiah 6. 
Isaiah sees the Lord upon a throne, but then we quickly move to the text focusing on his robe, filling the temple. And what about those glorious seraphim details? That's what's highlighted. Same in Ezekiel 1, the prophet only sees what he describes, and note the language he says, as a likeness. One questions what of God he is really seeing there, but it is a vision. From waist up, gleaming metal fire, and below the waist, brightness, like a rainbow. Now what's noteworthy of the Ezekiel vision is this, Ezekiel 1.26. Ezekiel records this, I saw the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire. Or some versions, or a footnote might say lapis luzili. You might have that there if you look close. Such a stone, when you think about sapphire stone, or again lapis luzili, is a metaphoric or metamorphic stone. And it's a stone that has this intense, brilliant blue color. It's very treasured in antiquity. This is a brilliant, brilliant stone. Such a stone, and note this, around the feet of God in Ezekiel 1, is exactly what we see here in Exodus 2. Exodus 24 as well. Look at the middle of verse 10. This is amazing as we continue. There was, under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for what? Clearness. Clearness. Mercifully, Isaiah, Ezekiel, the 74, see God and live, and even more, look at verse 11, and he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. This is absolutely incredible. Not only do they live, but look at it, again, so understated. They beheld God and ate and drank. Ah, they beheld God and ate and drank. This final covenant confirmation meal, which you see often, caps this first day on the mountain. And we need to remark that God's covenant is always marked with a meal. This is what we see in Scripture. In Isaiah 25, the, the promised millennium comes with a meal. Isaiah 25 says it's a feast of rich food. In Matthew 26, the new covenant meal is inaugurated. As Jeremy took us through this morning. And as we do every week, right? Covenant meal, marking a covenant meal. That's why we call it the Lord's Supper. And in Revelation 19, looking at the end, the marriage supper of the Lamb marks the final fulfillment. It marks the end of the tribulation. It marks the coming return of the King. God's wrath poured out as enemies vanquished. Christ returns and kingdom come. The fulfillment of covenant and now we have a meal. Their covenant pledge fulfilled here too as they eat and they drink for eat from Egypt. A preview. Okay, the final few verses of chapter 24 remain from confirmation now to location. Let's continue in verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there. That I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I've written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Moses is called up to Sinai now here a second time, and this time it's to receive the tablets. The tablets, of course, have been depicted in so many ways, but it is true, the stone here is what he receives. These are, the stone, the tablets, like official covenant documents now. Official covenant documents now with the ten words etched on them. 
As Deuteronomy 9.10 tells us, they will come back into view later, again in Exodus. Now, this again remembers the second trip up the mountain. And how do we know this is a different trip? Well, for one, the company, the traveling company, is different. On the first descent, it was Moses with, remember, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 elders. Here, it is only one, and it's who? Look at it, Joshua. Remember, that's Moses' protege. He, too, was in that scene with her in chapter 17. Remember that? And we'll, we'll see more of him down the road. Secondly, in verse 14, Moses actually turns to the elders, and what does he say? Basically, wait here. Wait there. They were part of the first ascent, but you're not part of this ascent. Wait here. And then he puts Aaron with him, right, who was on him with him on the first trip, and her, remember from chapter 17, these two presumably older men in charge of the assembly. And certainly they would have been much older than Joshua. So this makes sense. Two of the elder statesmen, one being Moses' brother, they're now in charge. But this also tells us that Moses knows, and you know this, you do this. When you put someone in charge, when you garner a proxy, he knows he's going to be gone for a while, right? This is not a four-hour trip. It'll be 40 days and 40 nights. And he puts a team in charge because he knows he'll be gone. In fact, you won't see Moses come down the mountain till chapter 32 after receiving tabernacle and priest instructions. Now, day one on that mountain for Moses is recorded in the final verses here. Look at verse 15. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Moses goes up the mountain, this time to the top, the summit, and there's a very familiar cloud at the summit. We've seen it before in chapter 19, a manifestation of the presence of Yahweh. We've seen this before. And they too, but here more specifically, the text is very specific, look at it, the glory of the Lord. That, again and now here, is what's dwelling on Sinai, the glory of the Lord. And note the description, verse 17, like a devouring fire. All of Israel could see, and they knew, they knew what was going on on that summit. The glory of the Lord was there. That was the dwelling place of the Lord. And right in the midst of that cloud, that manifestation, that glory is who? Verse 18, Moses, Moses, this church is the covenant place where God dwells here for Israel and meets his people with the covenant mediator that enters the cloud for the people. There under Moses, the covenant place was first, first the mountain, as we see today. In the new year, we'll see the next dwelling place of God, which will be the tabernacle. That was, as we'll continue to see in our study, the dwelling place then. Some may ask, what of the dwelling place of God for God's people? Are we not to that? Are we not that too? What about the dwelling place now for you and me? Beloved, it is a good question when we think about these dark times and these dark valleys we walk through. 
We don't have a summit to go to, right? We need a trip to the mountain or we beeline to the, the tabernacle that's over there in a geographical location. What of God's dwelling place now? We think about the fact that we live under the administration of a new covenant, don't we? A very different administration, a very different location. And with the dwelling place of God, listen, even though we're under this administration of God's people now, there was a prophecy, there was prophecies of the dwelling place of God that would come. And so fitting in this season to read at least one of them, Isaiah 7.14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And of course, Emmanuel means God with us. God with us. Emmanuel means God with us. That, in fact, is what the Apostle Matthew reminds us of in Matthew 1.23, speaking of the arrival, giving the account of the arrival of Jesus Christ. John 1.14, those in Sunday school, we read this downstairs, and the Word became flesh, and what? Dwelt among us. Incredible, isn't it? That's a new covenant administration, dwelt among us. God came down, took on flesh, and dwelt among us. Yes, that's true. And we remember, of course, this current season, Christmas, marks the incarnation. But God's dwelling place is more, beloved, in this new covenant economy. And if we miss this, we miss Christmas. We miss Christmas. It means a place of residence for Yahweh, for God, for the triune God is with those who receive him. This is not in a general location. Do you see this in New Covenant economy? With those who receive him. Those who have, let us be clear, those who have forsaken sin and self, those who have turned to Messiah, to Christ and saving faith, and genuinely, truly, fully, completely believe in him. Not in lip service, in token, that believe in them from their heart. God dwells there in such a testimony, in such ones like we saw this morning. Such ones that repent genuinely and believe truly. That's the glory of the new covenant. Listen, 1 John 4.15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, what? God abides where? In Him. And He in God. Colossians 1.27, to them, the saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is what? Christ in you, the hope of glory. 1 Corinthians 6.19, your body is what? A temple of the Holy Spirit within you. The dwelling place of God is with man and more in man, in every saint. If you are redeemed here today, the dwelling place of God is with you. That's your hope. Church, this Christmas, that's not just your hope. That's your certain hope. And listen, whatever the circumstance, I know many of you are going through family strife. I hear it, and I am with you. Believe me. Christmas table is going to look very different for my extended family, and so too many of you. Work upheaval. Many of you have the letters. And you say to us, I don't know what to do. Come the new year. The uncertain pregnancy. Some of you have test results you're waiting for. And some, like our brother Ian, lie in that hospital room. 
Beloved, that's a weight, isn't it? That is a weight this Christmas. Let's be honest. It's heavy. Yet if you are a new covenant Christian, what is the promise? God dwells with you. You take that into Christmas. He is with you. He doesn't ordain something he doesn't see you through. Christian, that's your security and your light and your hope. Listen. Listen to the Bible. Don't listen to me. God with you. This Christmas, in the new year, always until God calls you home. God with you. Always. Always. Come, Westmount Saints, now in light of that. And we must. The only fitting response is to do what? What they did on that mountain. Behold Him. There's no, no other response. We just behold Him. Our Savior, our Mediator, and our King. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, Lord, we do indeed now just look to behold You. There's nothing else we can say in dark times, in a lack of understanding, and in incompleteness, and inability, Lord. There's nothing that we can do but behold You. And Lord, we pray that You would help us do so rightly, properly, so that you receive the glory, Lord, no matter the outcome. So, Father, help us to do that now with one voice as we behold you and pray in Christ's name. Amen.